Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And, you know, I occasionally like to do episodes like the one that you're listening to now, where I talk about tech companies or tech products or just tech in general that failed. Now, I would be fibbing if I said part of this wasn't due to schadenfreude, you know, that weird sense of pleasure you get from seeing someone else fail. I'm not proud of that. It, it is a factor. But mostly, I like to cover these things to really look at what went wrong when that is, you know, determinable. So was it just a bad idea? Was it a good idea, but ahead of its time? Was it you know, poor execution. So it had nothing to do with the idea. It was just the way that people tried to, uh, you know, take advantage of it. You know, was it crummy people scamming other folks or sacrificing the health of a business for their own self gain? Or was it some combination of these things or something entirely different? So today I thought we would revisit some various companies and tech products that failed and see what lessons we can learn, if any, and maybe, maybe, you know, indulge our schadenfreude along the way. Also, some of these are stories that I've covered in other episodes of Tech Stuff, but since we recently passed the 1,600 episode mark, I figure a lot of y'all probably haven't heard those. Uh, I hope you'll forgive me for going back over some stories I've talked about in the past, but uh, let's get to it because there are a couple of them where I feel like I need to make some updates. So, I figured to start this all off, it would be fun to talk about Microsoft Bob, because not only was this a notorious flop, but it also spawned some stuff famous that famously irritates people to this day, like, like the Comic Sans font um, often gets lumped in with Microsoft Bob. But let's, let's break this all down. What exactly was Bob? Well, in the early days of personal computers, using a computer was a bit daunting, for the uninitiated. Before GUI or GUI operating systems, that's graphical user interfaces, that'd be stuff like the Mac operating system and Windows. Before all that, we had DOS. This was a command line based operating system. That means you would have to type in stuff to navigate the file systems and to execute programs. And it wasn't exactly intuitive, like you'd be doing CD to change different directories and things like that. These systems were a bit of a barrier to entry for a lot of folks because it just looked like, you know, gibberish if you were to glance at a screen and not really understand what the commands all meant. But then you had the GUI systems, the graphical user interface systems. So you had stuff like Windows and Mac OS where you can represent programs with icons and clicking on an icon launches a program. This is way easier to grasp than using directory commands typed into a, a, a text-based operating system. But even this could be a little intimidating for new users who had never worked with a computer ever. And so some engineers at Microsoft came up with an alternative. Bob replaced the familiar desktop layout of Windows 3.1, with a cartoon representation of various rooms. And the objects in the room would stand in as icons for different programs. So if you wanted to check your schedule, you could click on a calendar that's hanging on the wall in your room. Uh, you want to look at your monthly budget? You click on a little binder that has a dollar sign on it, and that's sitting on a little coffee table. You even had a little dog named Rover who would pop up in the corner, and he would give you either helpful tips or irritating ones on how to navigate and use the system. Rover would serve as a model for another Microsoft creation that would get tons of hate over the years. That would be Clippy, the paperclip that would pop up and say things like, it looks like you're trying to write a letter. Would you like some help with that? And for the record, I actually did not mind Clippy, except for the times when it would try to help me do something that I had done a thousand times before. The goal of Bob was to map various computer functions to the real-life equivalent of the activities you would 
you know, do to manage the same thing. So it was to strip all the computer stuff away and to make it really intuitive to use. So what happened? Why did Bob flop? Well, there are several reasons. One was that Microsoft's major update to Windows, which was Windows 95, was right around the corner. So getting an overlay for Windows 3.1 just before Windows 95 launched probably wasn't the best timing. Another was that Microsoft Bob was a $100 purchase at launch, which is a pretty pricey piece of software. It was also resource hungry. So to run Microsoft Bob, you needed a computer that was at least a 486, meaning it had an Intel 486 processor or better, you needed 8 megs of RAM and 30 megs of disk space. Now today, that's nothing. Your phone has far more capabilities than that. But back in the mid-90s, this represented a fairly hefty computer and not that many people had them. But wait, there's more. According to Pateri Yarvinen, and I know I've butchered the name, I apologize. Anyway, uh, a writer for Computer Magazine, Microsoft Bob also had non-existent security. All right, so Bob was designed to work not just for individuals, but for households. So you could create a password for your account to let you access Microsoft Bob. But apparently this was more for personalizing your experience rather than securing it. As the review said, if you entered a password incorrectly three times, the assistant like Rover, would pop up to help you reset your password. Do you see an issue with that? Let's say you and I share a computer, and I happen to know that you've got a digital personal diary on that computer, but I can only access it if I were to log in as you because you've protected it in a private space that I don't have general access to. Well, if this is true, if this piece in Computer Magazine was accurate, I wouldn't even need to guess what your password was. I could type anything three times in the password field and then reset your password to something I know and log in as you. Then I can read all your juicy secrets in that diary. When you try to log in, well, first it looks like you're locked out of your account. But if you enter the wrong password three times, you get to reset the password again, and so it goes. Or you could log into my account and wreak havoc. I should add that there were only a couple of reports that this feature existed. Uh, like, I, I looked around to see if I could find verification that, in fact, this was something that Microsoft Bob did. And in our episode where we talked about Microsoft Bob many years ago, we talked about this feature because that's what we were finding the reports on. However, I do not have Microsoft Bob installed on my machine, so I can't actually verify that that really happened. And I did see some discussions that suggest that maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe they were using an earlier version of Bob or something. I don't know because I've never personally used it and I cannot verify this. So it's, a, it's good to say that this is a possibly apocryphal story. And I sure hope it is an apocryphal story, because otherwise this is effectively the same as having no password protection at all. Again, unless the password didn't exist to secure things, but rather to create a personalized experience for each you know, individual who was using that computer. So everyone with access to that computer would be able to log in and see the UI that's laid out like a house. And each person could create their own private rooms, and they could even lock those rooms with password protection, but there would also be public rooms that everyone shared. What's more, you can make changes to public rooms. Actually, you can make changes to your private rooms, too. You can move stuff around. You could even delete icons that go to applications. You could vandalize rooms, in other words, and I don't know if the room passwords were connected to the user passwords, or if they were, if you could use the same password trick that I mentioned earlier to get through it, but either way, it's not a good solution. Even if you logged in as a guest, you could make changes to all the public rooms. You could delete stuff and move things and hide icons in different places, and just make life generally unpleasant for the other people who use that same shared computer. 
One last thing that really killed Bob was that Microsoft didn't really want to make deals with uh, OEMs or rather wasn't able to make any deals with OEMs. An OEM is an original equipment manufacturer. And those deals would have had Bob pre-installed on new computers, but Microsoft didn't really pursue that. This is typically how companies like Microsoft get their products on brand new machines. So if you buy a computer off the shelf at a retail store or online through most providers, chances are it comes with an operating system and a suite of software that is pre-installed on that machine. So behind the scenes, you have these big deals going on and Microsoft just didn't really do that with Bob very much. So Bob didn't Bob, Bob sunk. What's next? Uh, let's talk about Microsoft a little bit longer just for a moment. There are certain builds of Microsoft's Windows operating system that received a really bad reputation. So for example, Windows Vista, which was released in 2006, became the punching bag for a lot of computer review magazines. Uh, it was following up on the massively popular Windows XP operating system. In fact, that operating system is so popular that there are still some people out there using it like two decades later. Windows Vista confused people like right out of the gate because upon launch, there were six different versions of the operating system you could choose from. There was Starter, Home Basic, Home Premium, Business, Enterprise, and Ultimate. That immediately caused some confusion right away. Windows Vista also required a pretty beefy PC to run well, so people who wanted to just upgrade from Windows XP to Windows Vista and still use their old computer, they often found that the new operating system made their computers really sluggish and unresponsive. And I have complained multiple times on this podcast about how I hate an operating system that hogs up computer resources because back in my day, used a ding-dang DOS prompt and you liked it. And it just, it was a much lighter lift for your computer. So more of your resources could go to all the programs you want to run, not the operating system that's in the background. Vista did improve over time, but that initial launch version turned a lot of people off. It was a really bad first impression. Microsoft would seemingly learn its lesson, and when Windows 7 came out, the company incorporated the best of Vista's features while leaving out the worst of them. And then came Windows 8. Alright, so let's go ahead and do this one too while we're here. Windows 8 launched in 2012, and you know what? When I start looking at this list, I see a lot of entries that hover around 2011 and 2012 as launch dates. There was something about those years. Anyway, this was Microsoft's attempt to unify the PC and the tablet experience. I suppose the thought was that there were all these computers coming out that had touchscreens, you know, laptops and just regular displays that were touchscreen displays, and that we were all going to migrate to using computers that had these touchscreen interfaces. Even though most people I talk to who have machines that do have touchscreen capabilities very rarely use the touchscreen part. But this meant that Microsoft really doubled down on a user interface that just didn't take off. It was really optimized for like that tablet touchscreen experience, but that didn't really work so well for desktop users. And as a result, the operating system was not really sim simple to use and people hated it. Many people hated it enough that they uninstalled it and went back to Windows 7. And again, Microsoft addressed many of the issues of Windows 8 with updates, but it really wasn't until the launch of Windows 10 that people came back round to being excited about a more recent Windows build. Don't know what happened to Windows 9? Don't ask me. And we'll have to see if the release of Windows 11 uh, will show that the company has actually learned its lesson or if it will repeat its past mistakes. All right. Let's look at 2012 and get away from Microsoft. 2012 is when Google introduced a spherical media streaming device called the Nexus Q. And by introduced, I mean unveiled, not launched. Uh, it kind of looked a bit like a black bowling ball with, you know, a logo on it. 
it was sort of a predecessor to Google's smart speaker home system and the Google Chromecast gadgets. The Nexus Q was meant to bring streaming media to the living room. Now, by streaming media, I should be really clear. The Nexus Q had very limited options. You could stream YouTube videos, you could stream Google Play movies and TV shows, or you could stream music from Google Play Music. And that was it. This was 2012. Netflix had been streaming content for five years already. There were plenty of other streaming audio services out there that were really interesting. And critics lamented that you had such limited options on the Nexus Q. To control the Nexus Q, you needed to pair a smart device with it, whether it's a smartphone or a tablet, and there was a special app that you would run on that Android-based device. This would effectively turn your phone or tablet into a remote control. There was no voice integration with the Nexus Q. And it was expensive. The base model was meant to retail for $299. That didn't include speakers, so if you wanted to use your Nexus Q to listen to music, you would have to shell out some extra dough for speakers, unless you just happen to have some speakers that had you know, banana plugs, that's the style of plug that would go into the Nexus Q, then you could repurpose those for your Nexus Q. Otherwise, you had to buy new ones. That could be a few hundred bucks. Uh, buying the cables would also set you back another $50 or so. Google handed out free Nexus Q units to attendees of the I.O. event that year. I did not go. I've only been to one I.O. event, and it was one of the ones where Google had nothing to hand out. So, uh, I mean, I'm not big on on getting handouts anyway because I don't review products, so it'd feel weird to get them. But that's just one of those things that sticks in my craw. The fact that, <laughs> that the one year I go was a year where there was there was no goodies. Anyway, apparently Google got some feedback about how the tech was lackluster in comparison with other similar streaming solutions on the market, and Google pushed back the planned launch date from the summer of 2012 to never. Google abandoned plans to launch it. So now they're just kind of collector's items, I guess. Maybe. Now, I could do an entire episode just on Google failures. In fact, I think I might have done that at some point. So... Instead of that, we're going to cover some other notable misfires in tech after we take this quick break. All right, we're back. Let's get back to 2011, you know, 2011, 2012, a magical time in tech. A a startup called Color Labs started up right in 2011. They wanted to take aim at photo sharing on smartphones with a brand new app called Color. Uh, Bill Nguyen, fresh off a massive deal in which he sold off an earlier startup he had founded called Lala, he sold that to Apple for a whopping $80 million, founded Color Labs. And it was intended to compete with apps like Instagram, which was not yet part of the Facebook family back in 2011. But It was going to do this in a fundamentally different way. So rather than follow specific people, like your friends or celebrities or, you know, dogs that you know, I might be talking more about my habits on Instagram here. Instead, you would use color to look at photos that were taken and uploaded near wherever you were in the world at that time. So in other words, you would wander around the world. Maybe it's just your town Maybe it's a a city you've never visited before. You would whip out your phone, you'd open up the color app, and you would see who had taken what photos near the spot you were in, which I guess sounds interesting for certain types of experiences and photos. But to me, it also sounds kind of like just peeking in on the photos of people you most likely don't know. Most of the time, I suspect that's pretty boring. Or you're looking at photos at something that you can actually see for yourself right where you are at that moment. So you can say like, hey, look, honey, someone uploaded a picture of a tree that's right there, which doesn't seem super compelling. Now, I can see how such an app might be interesting during big events that are happening in a specific place. Like if you attended a concert or a festival or the Olympics or something, 
then you might want to open up color and look at photos that other people were taking and uploading. But again, you'd likely get a ton of people who are taking pictures with their friends and, you know, without knowing anyone in the photos, you'd just be looking at random pictures. Add to this issue the fact that the user interface on color was needlessly obtuse and you had a recipe for failure. And that's exactly what happened with Color Labs. The company stuck around for a little less than two years before it closed up shop. Color was a flop. You know, one recent flop I feel like I need to talk about briefly was Quibi, which I've done episodes on before. Quibi was a failed service that that uh, crashed partly due to just incredibly bad timing and partly because I'm just not sure that the actual use case for Quibi was that compelling to start with. In other words, you could blame the pandemic for Quibi's demise, but I'm not convinced Quibi would have stuck around even if we hadn't had the pandemic. Now, if you don't remember Quibi, I don't blame you. Even though it launched just last year, it was a video streaming service in which subscribers would be able to watch exclusive, highly produced content on mobile devices. The whole use case for Quibi was that people like to be on their phones. So you might, you know, get in line somewhere like at the coffee shop and you look at your phone as you wait. So the thought was, why not design an app that specifically targets those people? This design extended not just to the user interface, but also to the content itself. So for one thing, you could watch Quibi content either in portrait mode or in landscape mode on your device. And your view would shift to get a full screen experience no matter which way you were holding your smartphone, for example. But this meant that content creators needed to be aware of that. And that meant that they needed to be really careful at how they filmed things because if you were viewing it in portrait mode, you know, long ways, like up and down, you might miss out on important details that would otherwise be at the edge of the frame if you were watching it in landscape mode. So filmmakers had to take that into consideration. Otherwise, you know, it, like let's say you're watching a mystery and there's a visible clue if you're holding your phone in landscape, but when you hold it in portrait, it's punched in and you don't see that clue, you're missing out on something important. As for the content piece, Quibi content was meant to be short, like 10 minutes, bite-sized, quick bites. That's what Quibi was. Content creators can make long-form shows and movies, but the user would access these in chapters that maxed out at 10 minutes. This meant that as a content creator, you needed to structure your work so that you could tell a story, or at least an effective part of a story, in 10-minute chunks. For movies, this would mean that you would ideally have a piece that would end on a cliffhanger, and that kind of encourages the viewer to keep watching and go to the next chapter, which is sort of like a, a Dan Brown novel, and just as awful. I admit my bias is showing, and I don't care. The subscription models for Quibi came in two flavors. You could cough up five bucks a month to watch the content, along with ad support thrown in, so you would get commercials, or you could up that to $8 per month and get an ad-free experience. It wasn't as expensive as some other streaming media platforms, so at least it had that going for it. Back in 2018, when Jeffrey Katzenberg of Disney and DreamWorks fame first founded the company, he brought on Meg Whitman to serve as CEO. Even then, the idea was a long shot. But then, when the service launched in April of 2020, the world was in a very different place. COVID-19 outbreaks meant that the world was going into lockdown. People weren't finding themselves in the situations that Quibi's founders had envisioned as being the perfect scenarios to engage in Quibi content. Because, you know, there were no more lines. People were at home. They could watch stuff on computers and televisions. The short-form approach that was optimized for mobile just didn't make much sense at that point. Making matters worse is that the company really front-loaded the content for launch. They spent an enormous amount of money to have a library of shows and films for users, and Quibi offered a pretty generous free trial, but saw that many people simply canceled their accounts rather than switching to becoming paid subscribers. So it was unsustainable. 
Quibi was only around for about half a year. The company announced it would be shutting down, and in early 2021, it sold off all remaining assets to Roku. Let's go from Quibi to Quirky. This one was a heck of a one to look into. I went down a rabbit hole while researching Quirky. Uh, And this one's an outlier in our list because Quirky is maybe still around today, but it's in a different form from what it was at launch. So back in 2009, there was an entrepreneur and inventor named Ben Kaufman who launched this new company. And the purpose of this company was to give would-be inventors an opportunity to monetize inventions and turn them into real products. And that was a kind of nifty idea. The idea is that the inventors would submit their ideas, uh, quirky analysts, analysts for quirky, not analysts who were quirky, would review the submissions and the good ones would get turned into products and the people who submitted the invention would get a royalty on a per-sale basis. Uh, It's one thing to come up with the world's next hit invention, but it's another thing to actually bring that invention to market. So inventors are not always, you know, in the employee of a big company. And so that's where Quirky was really stepping in. And inventors could submit their work and then they could possibly profit off of that. The royalties were very small, like one and a half percent per sale. But if you think about it, if you don't have any way of actually producing your invention and bringing it to market yourself, then it's not doing you any good at all. So it's it was kind of like a better than nothing kind of alternative. Kaufman's team raised around $200 million in various rounds of financing, and the company did bring some products to market, in fact, several products to market, including an automated home hub platform called Wink, but not all the products were hits, and the costs of manufacturing were such that Quirky's broad approach became unsustainable. In early 2015, Quirky changed strategies, and rather than produce stuff itself, it would seek out licensing partnerships with established big companies like GE and Amazon. But Quirky was still losing money, and in the summer of 2015, the company was out of cash and filed for bankruptcy. In that process, the company sold off its Wink platform for $15 million to another company called Flextronics. Flextronics had actually been contracted to manufacture the Wink products, so they just bought the IP. And a group of investors bought out the rest of Quirky's assets, and a couple of years later, Quirky returned with a slightly different approach. The new Quirky doesn't get into the manufacturing side at all. Investors get that 1.5% royalty on the wholesale price of the product stemming from their invention, and that's paid out once per quarter, so four times a year max. Gina Waldhorn, who had co-founded a company called Evolation, took over as president of the new organization, uh, but according to her LinkedIn profile, she stepped down in 2019. However, her Twitter bio still reads that she's president of Quirky. I honestly don't know who is in charge of Quirky right now. I did a search and everything. I even searched the Secretary of State website to try and find out more information, but everything pointed back to, to Gina, who appears to be pointed away from Quirky. She now serves as the Chief Operating Officer of the Sports Innovation Lab. So I don't know who's in charge of Quirky at all, or if Quirky is still an ongoing thing. The company hasn't posted a video to its YouTube site since 2017, or I'm sorry, 2018. It hasn't posted an Instagram post since 2019. So I don't, I don't know if it's currently active or not. Uh, All the sources I found say it's active and the website's still up. You can still create an account there and everything. So I don't know. Anyway, next, let's talk about a company that was aiming to shake up the smartphone space a bit. And I'm talking about Essential Products, a company co-founded by the Android founder, Andy Rubin, in 2015. This was before the allegations about misconduct and sexual harassment and worse about Rubin. It was before all that became public. 
Uh, Ruben was seen as, as a kind of tech genius. The Android operating system had become the most popular mobile OS in the world. And people were eager to see what Ruben would bring when given the chance to head up the design of a new phone and not answer to Google. The company worked largely in secret for two years before announcing the Essential Phone in 2017, and the design was pretty attractive. The screen on the phone was more or less bezel-less, meaning the screen just covered the entire front section of the phone except for a tiny notch for the phone's camera. The company received a billion dollars in investments from various big companies like Amazon and Foxconn, as well as other investor groups. And the Essential Phone debuted two months late, and early reviews found a few flaws. Uh, There were bugs in the software that made it difficult to use. The camera wasn't nearly as good as what had been promised. And making matters worse for the company was the launch of the iPhone X, which had a similar form factor without the issues of the Essential Phone. So sales were disappointing. They were lackluster. The company announced plans for a second phone, but that second phone never materialized. The world heard about the allegations against Ruben and the subsequent enormous golden parachute he received from Google upon leaving the company, and that seriously overshadowed anything that Essential was working on. The company folded in early 2020. Now, our next entry requires a bit of an ancient history lesson. So scooch closer to the fire and let old prospector Johnny tell you a tale of MMORPGs or massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Now, before there was a World of Warcraft, which for some people is synonymous with MMORPG, there was a little fantasy game called EverQuest. EverQuest was the was not the first uh, MMORPG either. I want to make that clear. Uh, that's a story for a different time. EverQuest is a game that technically is still running today. You can even play EverQuest for free. But the thing I want to talk about was a proposed spinoff of EverQuest called EverQuest Next. Uh, this would have gone beyond an expansion pack or an iterative update. It was in some form of development since at least 2010. The ideas for EverQuest Next were really ambitious. The world of EverQuest Next would change organically as players interacted with it. So one example I heard is that imagine that you and some other players clear out a space, you go adventuring, you you clear out a space of monsters, and you decide decide to establish a town there, and you, you build houses, and you've got a town. But then you go off adventuring, and you're gone for a really long time, and there's no one left behind at your town. You might come back and find that your town has been resettled by bandits or orcs or something like that. So in other words, there would be emergent gameplay that would develop on its own just based on what was happening within the world. This is in contrast with the way most online worlds work, in which game developers design scenarios for players to go through that have a beginning, middle, and end that's already pre-written, and there's no lasting impact on the online world itself. Creating a changing online world is a tough path to follow. I mean, imagine if a game server were invaded by griefers, and the griefers set about just trying to change the online world in such a way that it becomes unwelcoming to everyone else, for example. But it was a really cool idea. Unfortunately, it was a cool idea that was really hard to do, and the developers went back to the drawing board at least once as technology continued to improve while the game development languished in developmental hell. We saw a very similar issue with the game Duke Nukem Forever, which famously was considered vaporware for the better part, in fact, more than a decade before it finally came out. And part of the reason it was considered vaporware is that the head of that project kept demanding the game be rebuilt essentially from scratch in order to take advantage of the latest in-game engines and computational abilities. So the team would be working on a build of the game, then you would get a better game engine and the head, the lead of the, the project would say, all right, well, we need to make this game for this new game engine, so scrap everything and start over. Meanwhile, 
Other issues were complicating matters for the EverQuest team. In 2015, Sony, which had been uh, you know, publishing EverQuest under Sony Online Entertainment, spun off that division into a new company with the name Daybreak Game Company. So now Daybreak Game Company was in charge of EverQuest Next. A year later, development on EverQuest Next came to an end. Reportedly, the reason for stopping was because... They had been working on this property for several years, and the end result just wasn't fun to play. So rather than chase a moving target, the company focused on other titles, including EverQuest 2, a more traditional MMORPG, one where the world doesn't change with player activity. When we come back, we'll look at a few more random failures in the tech world. But first, let's take a quick break. The next one is another story that has an addendum to it, and we get to go back to 2012. I mean, there's something about that year, right? Anyway, that's when the world learned that Valve, the company famous for the computer game online marketplace called Steam, as well as for creating really notable games like Half-Life and Portal and stuff like that, was going to release some hardware. And not just any hardware, but a dedicated game console that would be able to play PC games. In fact, the console was essentially a Linux-based PC running a special Linux distro or version called Steam OS. Valve partnered with various companies to make it all come true, and therein was part of the problem. It was kind of like what happened with the old 3DO game console years earlier, and the result was that you had Valve working with different PC companies, and they were each producing Steam machines, so that meant that different companies produced their own version of the Steam machine console. That meant there was no unifying design or set of specs, so you could look at two different Steam machines and find that they have wildly different features, really confused the market. It also didn't help that the game developers were kind of thrown under the bus for this. Even game developers that ported games to run on Linux found that those games weren't necessarily running so smoothly on Steam operating system. Uh, sometimes they couldn't run at all. Many of the manufacturers chose to include Windows as well as the Linux distro, or some of them would just sub Windows in entirely and get rid of the Steam operating system. That was not a great look. The consoles did start to come out around 2014, but they got pretty mediocre reviews. Uh, the Steam controller had a little more love than the consoles did. By 2018, most companies had just stopped making Steam machines. They were pretty much extinct. But life, uh, finds a way. Recently, Valve announced it was producing a handheld gaming device capable of playing PC games, and it's called the Steam Deck, and it's supposed to be available starting this December 2021. I do wonder how the semiconductor chip shortage is going to affect the supply of the Steam Deck. Don't know about that yet. But it is an interesting design. It kind of makes me think of the Nintendo Switch when you're using Nintendo Switch in handheld mode. Uh, just like the Nintendo Switch, you will be able to connect the uh, Steam Deck to a television using a dock or cables. This one will come in a few different loadouts. Uh, the prices range from $399 for the base model up to $649 for one that has greater storage capacity. The Steam Deck will run on an updated version of the Steam operating system, though Linux users will also be able to take advantage of the normal Linux desktop if they want to, and just navigate to other sources, not just Steam, in order to get the content on these, these uh, handheld computers. That's what they are. I'll likely do a full episode about this later on, maybe when we get closer to launch, but this is not the time to talk about unreleased tech, it's time to talk about tech fails. And hopefully the Steam Deck will not join that list, but it's too early to say. So let's get to things that we do know failed. Now, some fails seem inevitable in retrospect because an even casual examination of the technology reveals problems. 
let us talk for a moment about the Juicero Press, which was a Keurig-like device that could produce a fresh glass of fruit or vegetable juice at the touch of a button. So you would purchase the juice in pouches, you would insert the pouches into this machine, which would scan the the pouch, and then it would, you know, you touch a button and the machine would squeeze the bag empty and the contents of the pouch would go into a glass beneath the machine. Or alternatively, if that was too much work, you could just grab one of the juice pouches by hand, hold it over a glass, squeeze the bag yourself, and you would get the same result. So the Juicero Press was a very expensive pouch-squeezing machine. So how expensive? Well, at launch, it cost $700. And on top of that, you would have to subscribe to the company to get a selection of fruit and vegetable juice pouches sent to you on a regular basis. You couldn't just put, like, fruit in there. It had to be these pouches. But wait... It gets worse. So the Juicero Press did have a little more tack to it than just a pouch squeezing mechanism. It had a scanner and it could connect to Wi-Fi and you'd use that scanner to scan the pouches that had a little QR code on them. And you'd have to do that before you could enjoy a glass of juice. It wouldn't squeeze the pouch until you scanned it first. Now the company claimed the purpose of this feature was to verify that the juice was fresh because these juice pouches had a shelf life of a little more than a week. So you wanted to make sure you weren't drinking spoiled juice. That's not a great idea. So the company said the Juicer O-Press will verify that a pouch is actually good to go before actually squeezing it into your glass. But other people pointed out that this specific approach also meant that the company could deny any other organization from making compatible juice pouches. If the Juicero Press first has to scan a code before it can squeeze out some juice, then it could effectively be a form of digital rights management. That QR code is DRM. It prevents anyone else from making their own pouches. And that gave Juicero the monopoly, or at least opened up the opportunity for Juicero to have like licensing deals so no one could make pouches without the company's permission. By 2017, the company was calling it quits with the press. They were calling the sold units and refunding customers, and it became a a symbol for the excesses of startup culture in general and Silicon Valley in particular. I mean, literally, this machine was not necessary. Uh, You could just take those pouches and squeeze them yourself and get the same, you know, result. And uh, you could do that, you know, it was far cheaper to just go and buy pouches of fruit juice. Like, doing the subscription didn't make much sense. I think the juice pouches were somewhere between $5 and $8 a pop. It's very expensive. Definitely excess. Sticking with 2017, that's when Apple announced a product called AirPower, and it was meant to be a new kind of wireless charger capable of charging up to three Apple devices simultaneously. So wireless charging was already a thing, of course, using, you know, inductive coils to recharge nearby tech. Typically, you'd nestle the tech on a dock or you lay it down on a pad. But Apple's goal was to create a charging pad large enough to have, say, an iPhone, an Apple Watch, and some AirPods all charging on it at the same time, and all without having to find the specific, you know, hot spots on the pad where charging could occur. The idea being like, You just lay your tech on this pad, you're good to go. You don't have to fuss with it. Apple unveiled this idea while revealing the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 10. Again, we skip over nines. Then they said that the air power would come to market in 2018. But then 2018 happened and air power didn't. In the spring of 2019, tech journalists reported that Apple had quietly canceled the project. So what happened? Well, reportedly, the engineers at Apple discovered that their goal was harder to achieve than they first thought. It was tough to create a working pad that didn't have issues with interference or overheating and offered, you know, charging across the entire pad so you didn't have to worry about where things go. So after several failed attempts to actually create a reliable and working and safe product, the company pulled the plug, so to speak. 
Recently, Mac Rumors reported that Apple is actually still investigating the possibility of creating a wireless charging pad similar to what the AirPower was meant to be. And also, according to those same rumors, Apple is also looking into alternatives for charging pads, seeking out solutions that could allow for wireless charging over greater distances. Now, typically, that's pretty tricky. It usually requires you supply more power to the charging device in order to reach these greater distances. And at some point, you reach a stage where it's just inefficient and expensive to do that. Now, some fails don't look like fails right away. They can stick around for a good long while. And that's the case for our final one. And it's a shame because this company made some really neat stuff. And I'm talking about Anki or Anki, A-N-K-I. And I'm talking specifically about the hardware company that specialized in robotics and AI in toys. Founded in 2010, the company first got attention in 2013 when it unveiled the Anki Drive product. And this was a really cool idea. So imagine your typical toy race car racetrack. In the old days, you would have a handheld controller with a trigger on it, and that would just let you, you know, control the speed of your vehicle as you raced it along your designated lane in a pre-built track. You know, maybe there's two lanes, but there's like a little divider there, so your car's in one and your opponent's car's in the other. Well, Anki took this idea and brought it into the future. The tracks in Anki Drive are wider than your typical toy race car track with no dividers, and there are multiple lanes on these tracks. The toy cars had AI incorporated into them and would connect to your smartphone via an app, and they could actually change lanes. So they weren't stuck in one specific pathway on this track. You could, you know, kind of like in a highway, you could change lanes that way. So you would build out a racetrack using some pretty darn expensive pieces. Then you would put your vehicles down the track to travel the entire length of the track in AI mode. This would let the AI learn the track's layout, kind of mapping it out. After doing that, you could race against an AI-controlled car. So AI would control one vehicle and you would control the other. Or you could race against friends who were controlling one or more other vehicles. In addition to speed control, you would tilt your smartphone to the left or to the right to trigger the accelerometer. That would cause your car to switch into a different lane. So your toy car wasn't stuck in that same lane all the way around. You could change lanes to pass someone else or to avoid an obstacle. Uh, and the app also had a couple of features that let you use quote-unquote weapons against other players on the track. Uh, if you got close enough to an opponent and you activated a weapon, then a little signal would pass between the two cars and it would cause your opponent to maybe slow down or even spin out. It was pretty neat. And if you wanted a set, you also needed a really nice big place to set everything up because these tracks took up a lot of space. And you would also be spending around $150 just for the basic set. If you wanted any additional vehicles, each one would cost you another 50 bucks. And I think it was $60 to buy an expansion set of track. So if you didn't have all you needed when you were setting up at first, you would have to shell out even more money. So yeah, it was a large and very expensive toy, but it had some genuinely neat features that I thought were pretty cool. A few years later, Anki released a robot called Cosmo, a robot that kind of made me think a lot of WALL-E. And WALL-E, to be clear, was a movie that came out eight years before Cosmo launched. It looks a bit like a little bulldozer. It's got a little digital screen for a face and very expressive digital eyes. You could interact with Cosmo using an app and you could play with it as it moves around. You know, it picks up blocks and stacks the blocks or turns them around or, or just explores its environment on its own. And the app included several games that you could play with or against Cosmo. And I've watched videos of this thing. It's really super duper cute. If you ever want to watch a video of it, it's Cosmo spelled C-O-Z-M-O. Anki released a different robot that had a very similar form factor to Cosmo called the Vector. Vector had some virtual assistant features incorporated into it. It connected via Wi-Fi to home networks and used four microphones to pick up sound and voice commands. And it also had an integrated camera. It could 
helped the the robot navigate. It also allowed it to take photos. But in 2019, Anki found itself running out of money. The company had been selling robotic toy products for about six years. It had raised nearly $200 million in funding. But the bottom line was that despite having sold more than a million and a half robot products, it just was not bringing in enough revenue to stay in business. A company called Digital Dream Labs acquired Anki's IP, including the Vector Robot, which they, the labs said it would continue to support and develop. Now, because the Vector relies on the cloud for much of its functionality, to get the most out of it, you need a persistent internet connection, and now you need a monthly subscription to connect the Vector to cloud services. That subscription is $7 per month, or $47 per year. That more than upset a few Vector owners who had already spent a couple hundred dollars just buying the robot, and they were saying, why do I have to keep paying to make the thing I bought keep working. But the reality was that Anki was gone. That company no longer existed. Their servers were going to be offline without some other company stepping in. So no matter what, the vector was going to change, right? If Anki was just gone, then the servers would be offline and all that functionality would disappear. It does stink to have purchased something and then have to pay an ongoing fee to have it continue to work. But these are the risks we encounter in a world that is increasingly dependent upon cloud-based services. And that's just a few examples of some big tech fails. Uh, I might do another episode about this and get another collection to include up here just to illustrate how different pathways can lead to failure. Uh, And again, it might be a poor design. It might be a bad business plan. It may be because there was some external change, maybe like a change in the market that affects you. Or it could be that the original idea was just no good. Uh, So keep an ear out. I might do another one of these and and play around with some more failures and talk about those because we do learn a lot in the process. Hopefully, when we talk about these failures, no one like lost their shirt or anything in the process. And learned something along the way. But, uh, you know, failure is no fun. I've failed plenty of times and I've never enjoyed it, but I can at least appreciate what I learned as a process of failing. If you have thoughts about things I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, do not fail to send me a message. Do so on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 